Good morning. Uh, it's Pastor Will here at Reconcile Community Church uh, recording uh, a sermon today. And, and I'm, if I'm honest, that feels a little weird, but uh, I have been uh, thinking of you, church, thinking about uh, what, how you're doing, thinking of, of your faces and praying for you. And so I, I just want to say I miss you guys. I miss being able to meet together already. I think that's going to um, make the reunion uh, that much more sweeter when we can all gather together and worship God together. Um, and I think it's, it, it, it shows us the importance of face-to-face fellowship, that that isn't, uh, that isn't a side thing, but that that is actually integral to what it means to be uh, God's family together. And so uh, as you're worshiping, I, I, I do want to say that this is uh, uh, it's a frustration, but it's also a unique opportunity that uh, on Sundays we get to practice family worship in the home, as well as we have an opportunity to share God's word. And so as you're listening, you know, click that share button, uh, do a watch party, let's, let's, let's get God's word uh, going viral that was a bad example, but get, get it going out there and, uh, and let people um, hear about the goodness of God. So as, as you guys know, I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of a, a history nerd, and so when this, this virus began to, to start spreading, my, one of my first questions was, well, what have Christians historically done, or how have Christians historically responded to epidemics, to pandemics. Like, one thing that's interesting is that nothing is really new. Nothing is really new in the world. We, we, we see kind of repetitions with tweaks. And so uh, viruses, pandemics, plagues, they've come before. And I just wanted to know, well, what, what exactly was the response? And so I was reading uh, this article on the Gospel Coalition. It's called um, Responding to Pandemics for Lessons from Church History. And in uh, the year 240, uh, 249, around that time, there was something called the Plague of Cyprian. And it says that the Plague of Cyprian was a lethal pandemic that at its height caused upwards of 5,000 deaths a day in Rome. While this plague severely weakened the Roman Empire, the Christian response to it won admiration and a greater following. Dionysus, Bishop of Alexandria, reported, this is what he said, this is what he wrote, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and listen to this, cheerfully accepting their pains. Mainly in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their steed. So, so basically, the, the writing, the, 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 the records that we have, <coughs> at least in this pandemic, is that when there was a pandemic that Christians didn't, uh, didn't, uh, get immobilized by fear, but they ran to serve their neighbor, even at the cost of themselves. They showed uh, heroic sacrifice in order to help others. 
And it shows that in records that, that in Christian communities, that, 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 that even though there were individuals making supreme sacrifices, that, that there were lower rates of death because Christians braved um, the, 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 the unforeseen and the danger in order to help others. You know, this is sacrificial and admirable behavior. We need this type of attitude now. And so the big question is where does sacrificial, honorable love come from? Where does sacrificial, honorable love come from? We're going to look at Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 54. Acts 7, starting at verse 54. It reads, When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him, him being Stephen. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. The Holy Spirit, you would be with me, that you would be guiding my words, and that you would be with those who would hear. Lord God, that we would, would, would have both understanding of what your word teaches, and that we would also have the ability by your strength to obey. So, Lord, speak, speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to, want to give you an overview of what exactly happened. The first part is the martyrdom or the death of Stephen. Now, Stephen was the first martyr or he was the first Christian to die via persecution. What, what happened is that he was a leader in the church's first ministry to widows. They had a, a vast ministry to widows, and he helped organize the distribution of food, and he organized it in such a way that it avoided ethnic discrimination. That's a conversation for another time. But people did not like him because he's, he was a Christian. He didn't, they didn't like him because he spoke God's word. And, and what happened is that a bunch of people came, they debated him, and they lost. They felt salty about that loss, and then they started spreading false accusations about him. They couldn't defeat him in argument. They didn't like him. So they started spreading these rumors about him. 
They stirred up so much anger that, that essentially a mob came and threw stones at him until he died. Now, what I want to emphasize to you that because this was the first martyr, nobody woke up that morning thinking Stephen would die. Stephen didn't wake up that morning thinking that nobody in the church woke up that morning and thought that this. <clears throat> I want you to imagine the shock that, that there was a way of life that had become normal and that all of a sudden, out of the blue, somebody dies and shakes up their whole world in an instant. Things begin to change, and change for the worse. You know, I think about the, the, the seemingly instantaneous change that has happened in our world. Not only did Stephen uh, die that day, but, but Acts 8.1 says this. It says that on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Ju Judah, excuse me, Judea and Samaria. So after Stephen was murdered, a great persecution started and everybody had to flee for their lives. Again, I want to emphasize, nobody, nobody woke up that morning thinking, well, today I'm going to run for my life. Today I'm going to have to leave my home, maybe with only the clothes on my back, maybe with on, only, only what I can fit in a bag. Uh, I had to tell my children, well, you can't see that friend anymore. You can't, can't go to that place anymore. We have to leave. We have to go. They became instant refugees, and their lives went into upheaval. Now, so, so, so the question is, this, this, uh, this, what happened in the church was this first major sudden upheaval, a first crisis, and I want us to learn from their response to sudden life-changing tragedy and uncertainty. So how exactly the day that they respond? We're going to look at Stephen's response at the anger of the mob. We're going to look at the church's response at the, the persecution. The first thing that we see in verse 54 of chapter 7 is that Stephen looked to the heavens. In verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, this mob that was against him, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens are open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now listen, I want you to imagine this, that there is an angry mob that is so angry that they're, they're gnashing their teeth and they're running at him with rage. Now listen, if a mob was rushing at me, I think that I would maybe be looking at them. I would be looking for a way of escape. I might be looking for some help from somebody else. But we see in Stephen's response that he looked up and he saw the shining glory of God in Jesus standing there. In the moment of, of instantaneous uncertainty and fear, Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus. Now, what's so interesting is that, that this is that Jesus is standing 
by the right hand of God. Now, every other text that we see, uh, Jesus is actually sitting there. But, but, but when, when Stephen is about to be killed, when he looks up for help, he sees Jesus standing there. Now, now either one of two things are, are happening. Either Jesus is standing there ready to receive him, or Jesus is standing there to defend him. Now, scripturally, we know that both of these are true. That Jesus stands ready to receive us in the moment of our uncertainty, in the moment where we're like, what is going on? Jesus is ready to receive us, to bring us comfort. Jesus is ready to defend us. Any accusations that could be thrown to us, Jesus has received them on the cross. So in the moment of, of, of intense uncertainty and most likely fear, we see Stephen being filled with the Holy Spirit, looking up and seeing Jesus. In this moment, we need to keep our eyes and our gaze on Jesus, see him ready to accept us, see him ready to act on our behalf. Not only does he look to Jesus, but he then asks God to forgive those who are killing him. Look at verse 16. It says, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Get this. He's asking God to show mercy on the very people that are killing him. This is the very opposite of cancel culture. You know, even in this moment, as I've looked on social media, I see um, you know, anger, and, and listen, right anger about those who are hoarding uh, supplies uh, so that, that those who are in need can't get them. Uh, we, we're seeing anger about those who are, are ignoring social distancing, who are gathering in large groups and partying when, when we're trying to, to quarantine and, 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 and prevent the spread of this disease. But what is so interesting is that Stephen looks at the people who are, they're not maybe wrong, they're blatantly wrong, and he says, Lord, forgive them. That he can look at, at people who are, are doing harm to others, to himself, and say, Lord, forgive them. What would that attitude of mercy look like right now? What would the attitude of those, those who are, are doing harm, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, let me say, Lord, forgive them. We understand that biblical forgiveness comes with change. Lord, forgive them and change them. What if our, our impulse wouldn't be to lash out, but our, our impulse would be to look up and ask God to help to forgive and to show mercy? We see that the, the apostles, the leaders of the church, that they stayed in Jerusalem. This is crazy. The leaders of the movement would have been the main targets, but they stayed because they believed that they had responsibilities. You know, Martin Luther was a church leader in the 1500s, and, and there, there's a plague hit his particular town. And everyone's, everyone said to him, you need to leave. In fact, his, his wife was pregnant at the time. They said, you need to leave. And, and this is what he said. He says, we must respect the word of Christ. I was sick, and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as he himself would like to be helped. 
It makes me think of all the medical professionals right now in our country and around the world who are, who are essentially going straight in the face of danger at potential self-risk because of the responsibility they have to look danger in the face and help those who are weak. We see that they responded with grief, that, that, that devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Now listen, this may seem unimpressive, but it took courage to grieve. The people who, who had killed Stephen were still there. Yet they grieved openly and expressed grief. We need to grieve losses as an expression of worship. Listen, one of the Christian ways that, that we can behave in this moment is to have a demonstration of what godly grief would look like. Listen, expressed grief shows emotional maturity and prepares us for God's comfort. You know that you can't comfort somebody that you don't know was in distress. But our expression of distress, our expression of seeing uh, our lives in upheaval, of seeing other people's lives in upheaval, of seeing all this uncertainty, of knowing that people are going to be laid off of jobs, of, of looking at the reality and saying, God, how long? How long, oh Lord? That even that is an expression of worship, and that puts us right in the place where God would give us comfort. The last thing I want you to notice is that when the church scattered, remember, they became instant refugees, that their response was to flee, right, to run away. But it says, says that they were scattered and went on their way preaching the word. Listen, in a time of, of deep life upheaval, they decided to share hope. They decided to share hope. We know that this gospel of ours, it addresses shame. It addresses guilt. It addresses fear. Surely they were feeling fear, but instead of turning inward and hunkering down and not speaking to anybody else, they began to share the hope, the life, and the power of the gospel. Now, what we can know from the records is that their message was received, which means that they were not only talking about hope, but they were living hope. They were demonstrating that hope in the way that they lived. Even in the midst of great upheaval, we have this example of a church thrown into what is chaos, and they are living the hope of the gospel and proclaiming the hope of the gospel. Now, the major question that I have, the major question that you should have is this. Where in the world does that response come from? When we read how they responded to, to instant, intense, upheaval, death, mourning, that they responded with boldness, hope. How? Where did that come from? I want to present to you this idea of, of, of spiritual formation, being formed, spiritual formation. So everybody wants to think about how that they, they would respond in high-intensity situations, right? It's kind of a thought that you would think about. You know, if, you know, if, if we didn't have food, what would I do? If, if this happened, would I respond with boldness? Everyone likes to, to think what exactly they would do. Now, here's the deal. Professions that deal with high intensity do not leave this up to chance. 
They train for it, right? Officers train, firefighters train, medical professionals train. If you have a high-intensity uh, uh, job, you can expect a high degree and a high-intensity of training. Now, the reality is this. We are unknowingly practicing for our responses to situations by the way that we live. Our, our small decisions about how we live our lives, about how we spend our time, about how we talk to and treat others, they work together to form our character. It's like the actions that we take are, are like, a, like the chisel to, to what is the, 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 the impression of our character. Each, each little chisel might not be that big of a deal, but over time it forms what you see. And the reality is the Lord wants to shape us into individuals, into a people that respond like Jesus. It's the idea that, that, that spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and, listen, and the sake of others. And so the question that I want to pose to you when we look at their, the church's response in Acts 7 and 8 to what happened, to what was instant upheaval, and they responded with hope, boldness, and prayer, I want to know what were they, what were they doing before that? What in, in, in the practices of their life were they doing that, that, that it unknowingly got them ready to handle a situation like that? <clears throat> in Acts 2, we get a, we get a little, little uh, a snapshot of what their formation, what their practices were like. In Acts 2.42, it says this, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. <clears throat> now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They so, sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had needed. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we see a snapshot of the everyday practices that these believers would do that would shape them in such a way that when chaos, uncertainty, and crisis would hit, that they would respond with faith, hope, and love. We see that they had this united, consistent prayer. <clears throat> that is one of the most consistent things that, that you can see in, in the chapters from Acts 1 all the way up to 7, that, that they were united in prayer. In Acts 3, verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. What this shows is that the church, having adopted the Jewish practices, that, that they prayed together at set times during the day together. Their prayers weren't haphazard. They weren't, you know, maybe I pray a little here and there. They actually would structure their day around prayer. They would have morning prayer and afternoon prayer and evening prayer. They would structure their day. 
What were they praying about? Much of their prayers were modeled after the Psalms. They prayed and they praised God. They worshiped Him and they asked God for help. This consistent, every day, set aside time for prayer. I'm sure it didn't look particularly impressive, but I know this that it formed their souls. It formed the type of people that they would be. We can also see that they had consistent Christ-centered doctrine and teaching. We see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now listen, the record of that teaching, it highlights that God sent Jesus to die for sins and and raised him from the dead to bless people with repentance, with a change of life, Forgiveness and God's presence. It says they, they devoted themselves to the teachings about Jesus. To remember that he loves us, that he died for us, that he stands in heaven praying for us, that he stands ready to bless us. Listen, hearing this consistently might not seem impressive, but it consistently informs the soul. The record we have shows that, that they had fellowship. They made it a point to meet with one another daily, that they were there to encourage one another, that they were there to share their lives with one another. Ate together, prayed together. I'm sure they spent regular, everyday time together. Again, looking at that might not have been impressive, but it forms the soul. We can see that, that they demonstrated generosity and service. In Acts 2, 44, says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. They made it a point to be generous to others, to serve each other at the cost of their own good. It wasn't surplus. Now, again, you might have looked at that and Maybe it would have been impressive, maybe not, but I tell you this, it formed their souls to be dedicated to generosity and to service. The last thing I see that that over the course of the early church, that they demonstrated endurance and perseverance. That though they had not yet faced what they faced in Acts chapter 7, they did face adversity, they faced hardship. And they endured in their practices of prayer, of the word, of fellowship, of generosity and service. So the question that we have facing ourselves is how do we structure our lives in such a way that forms us to love others well during this time? What should we do? My contention today is that we would develop a, a rule or, or a rhythm of life for formation. To be formed into Christ's image for the glory of God and for the good of others. I'm going to tell you that I don't think this will happen by accident. We don't accidentally get more Christ-like. We don't accidentally become more loving and more ready to help others in times of need. And so we need to make sure that even in the upheaval that is now, that we would develop rhythms of grace, that we would put into practice 
these, these, these things of, of spiritual formation so that as no matter what happens as time goes on, that we are responding in a Christ-like loving way with faith and hope in the midst of uncertain times. So what would it look like for us to devote ourselves to these things, that, that even in the midst of uncertainty, that, that we would devote ourselves to prayer? What does it look like to have a rhythm of prayer? And I would present to you that, that we ourselves, that we would set aside times to pray every day. That, that, that we would have what, what the, the old ancient church would call the, the daily office or, or the office of the hours, meaning that we would have set time. So for my own personal life, I, I have a, a set time of prayer in the morning, a set time of prayer after lunch, a set time of prayer before bed. That, that this would be a consistent thing in our calendar. One of the, one of the, the things that I love to pray is, is called uh, the Jesus Prayer. And, and it's just this, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That we will be consistently crying out to God for mercy. And that a good structure of prayer would be the Lord's Prayer. That we would actually set times aside. And I want to be honest with you. The heavens don't part open every time that we pray. Right? You don't always feel fuzzy in your heart, but it forms us to love God and love our neighbor. What would it look like to develop a rhythm of, of Scripture and teaching? That we would have daily Scripture meditation, that you would get a plan, that you would uh, have a, a plan of Scripture, that you would read it consistently. I think now is a good time to, to use audio Bibles, to use the Bible app, to use um, um, streetlights, to use dwell. There's so many uh, opportunities, but that, that it wouldn't be happenstance that we would actually set it in stone. I am going to intake Scripture. I'm going to listen to teachings about Jesus. What would it look like to, for us to develop the, the habits and the rhythms of fellowship? You know, uh, our missional communities are still going to meet. We're, we're going to figure out how to meet right now. <clears throat> but we'll have this rhythm of fellowship that, that we would have a, a rhythm of meeting with others for encouragement. That we would have somebody, that we would seek that somebody would mentor us. That we would seek for, for, for uh, 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 people who are kind of in the same stage as us. And that we would seek to serve others. That for me, I have meetings set in my calendar for those categories so that I would consistently be in fellowship. That we would consistently demonstrate generosity and service that, that of what I give, that, that we would be tithing and giving to uh, God's church and that we would have extra for others. This is a time that is important. There are going to be people who are hungry. Do we have extra for them? And then the last thing is, is do, will we have endurance for set prayer, for set scripture meditation, for fellowship, for generosity, and for service? Will we endure in doing those things? There are going to be days when you don't want to devote yourself to formation, when you don't feel like it, when you feel drawn by this or that passion. But Jesus calls us to endurance in those simple little things that form us. You know, this, this whole idea that our 
character could change, that we could be made new, is only possible because Jesus died on the cross. You know, Jesus died on the cross so that it was possible that we could be made new, that that all of our sins, all of our wrongdoings were put on him. Think about the human condition for a minute. That, 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 that one writer said it's, it's like that we are turned in on ourselves, that we are so consumed with pleasing self that it hurts others. And Jesus died to forgive us of our own selfishness so that we would no longer be tied to our sin. You know how it is when someone continues to remind you of your wrongdoings over and over again and you feel tied to it? You might even begin to identify with those wrongdoings, with those mistakes. But listen, Jesus died on the cross so that your sins do not hang off of you. They are not not tied on you like a chain. But all of your sins, all of my sins are put on the cross with him. When the nails hit his hands, my sin was nailed there as well. And not only did he die, Jesus rose again. He rose again. It says that he is seated in heaven. And that same power that worked in in him to raise him from the dead is that same power that works in us to transform us. You know, if you're if you're if you're watching, if you're listening, you're like, I I feel uh, incapable of changing. I feel trapped by habits that are, that are chaining me down. I know I should be like this, but I can't. You need to understand that Jesus died so that your sin would not label you and that he rose from the dead so that the same power he demonstrated might change you. And listen, beloved, he stands ready, alive now to share and bless you to forgive you, and to turn you from sin. You know, when you come to Christ, there is an initial transformation, but this this transformation, this, this being made new continues through these little obediences of formation. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, what is my rhythm of life now? Do I submit to the simple practices of prayer, scripture, fellowship, generosity, service, endurance? Do I, do I submit to those now? Do I even have any type of rhythm or am I just carried around by whatever happens? What is my rhythm of life? I, I want you this week to, 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 I don't want you just to hear the sermon and, 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 you know, go about your day. I want you to ask yourselves, what practices can I put in place? How can I dedicate myself to prayer? What, what times will I do it? What plan of scripture will I read? What, when will I listen to it? When can I figure out how to reach out to other people uh, who are in the body of Christ to encourage me? How can I be generous and serve? What, what, what can I do to, to, to present myself to God that, that I could endure and persevere in these things? I want you to remember the connection. The connection is this. If we want to respond in an honorable, self-sacrificial, and godly way 
to the crisis that we see, to the anxiety and the uncertainty. That doesn't happen by accident. It happens to submitting ourselves to Christ's process of transformation. And beloved, he will change us. Remember, this this is for the glory of God and the good of others. I want to respond like the early church. I want to respond by looking to the heavens. I want to respond by loving those who are doing wrong, by, by praying, by, by remaining even in dangerous situations because of responsibility, and by spreading hope and love. I want to respond in that way. And Jesus has given us the path that our character would be formed, that we would respond with love for him and love for our neighbors. This is not about being spiritual for the sake of a badge of honor, but this is about the sake of becoming a person that responds well to the ups and downs of life and that loves others when it counts the most. That is my prayer and my longing for us, church that we would commit ourselves to running to Jesus to find hope, to find peace, and to find transformation. He is so gracious and kind that even in our little, sometimes feeble attempts at pursuing him, he will meet us there. He will produce love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness and kindness during this time in our hearts that we can love others well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would make us into the type of people that respond well to uncertainty. Lord, would would you conform us to your image? Lord, we want to be compassionate. We want to be loving We want to be gentle. We want to be bold and kind. Lord, would you produce this in us? Lord, would you help us to submit to your process of transformation? And Lord, would you use us to spread hope and love in this world that desperately needs it? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, usually we respond in a couple of ways, and one of the ways we usually respond is through communion. It's a time for us to remember and experience what God has done for us in Jesus, that on the night he was crucified, he he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that is spilled for you for the forgiveness of sins. We have this instruction to do this, and so I encourage you today with your family, you know, get some juice, get some bread, remember what the Lord has done how his body was broken for our forgiveness, how he was risen for our transformation. Love you, church. Amen.